Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they made solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. You know how you learn to really appreciate how good your products are? Leave town and get stuck with whatever shampoo is in the hotel. I take Pros and their custom hair products for granted, y'all. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do. From their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. I never found beauty products that really understood my needs. But ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with Pros, I've noticed so many benefits. My thin hair is moisturized but not weighed down. And my waves have never looked better. And Pros isn't just better for you, it's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corps, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So you get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our fearless finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. The words of the president weigh a ton. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to talk as Americans about whether we want that to continue to be true. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. It's a busy week, y'all. It's a busy week out in the world and here at Pantsuit Politics. So we will be on Instagram and Twitter with the impeachment testimony. And there is a Democratic debate Wednesday night. So before we get started with the massive amount of news we have to cover from the weekend, don't forget to mark your calendars to follow along with the hearings with us and, of course, with the debate on Instagram and Twitter. Wednesday night. We'll see you all there. Let's just start with an update from last week's episode. The New York Times has published an investigation of China's policies on the mass detention of the Uyghurs that we talked about last Tuesday. And this campaign came from the very top of the Chinese government. It is seen as prioritizing security over human rights, a mistake that we have certainly made in the Western world, 
many times over. And it includes actual documents from the Chinese government, which is so rare in reporting. So we just want to call that to your attention and make sure that you take some time to read that investigative reporting. It is very important and really offers insight into what's going on. Yeah, it was so shocking to me when I saw that headline that documents came from the Chinese government. Leaked documents from the Chinese government are unheard of. Almost as much or more than what's in the documents, it should signal to all of us like how terrible the treatment of these people are, that there was a leak to begin with. You know what I mean? That somebody took the steps to leak these documents to me shows that the treatment is so abhorrent It's even causing dissent in the Chinese government. You can imagine the massive personal risk that individual took on by leaking these documents. Absolutely. You really see the direction from President Ping. And something that I read was which was interesting is that his father was sort of a moderate when it came to ethnic groups and the treatment of ethnic groups inside China. And they thought that he would be the same way. Turns out, no. So I think these documents put another layer of disturbing information on what we already know. And like we talked about last week about the Uyghurs, and hopefully the release of this information will bring even more international attention to this issue and push the Chinese government to change its policy. The Chinese government is under pressure in Hong Kong as well as what started as protests have really escalated into collision and conflict. We told you last week that protesters were kind of camping in at universities. And now we have some really horrific reporting coming out of those universities. People are saying that they cannot leave. China has sent in its military to clean up the streets. And that sounds less threatening than it is perceived in Hong Kong, because it certainly calls to mind images from Tiananmen Square and other moments in history where the Chinese military has been responsible for just horrific murders of people expressing dissent. And so it is certainly escalating in Hong Kong. And I every day just kind of brace myself for what the headlines are going to hold. I don't think that protest really captures what's happening there anymore. I said in my Insta stories this morning, we have reached the outer limit of the word protest. I mean, these groups are at war with one another. You have bows and arrows. You have Molotov cocktails. You have... Um, injuries and deaths. I mean, I, I I don't know how I don't know if there's a word between protest and war, but there we need a new word because protest does not capture what this has escalated to, especially at Hong Kong Polytechnic University, which has been really the centerpiece over the weekend of much of the violence. There were some interesting developments. A Hong Kong court ruled that the emergency law enacted in October to ban protesters from wearing masks was unconstitutional. Also, I think part of the reason the fear and concern at the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese PLA coming into Hong Kong, is that they're not supposed to come unless invited by the government in Hong Kong. And the government in Hong Kong is saying, oh, they were volunteering to help. We didn't call them to um, take up arms against our citizens. But like you said, I don't really think that's how it's being perceived in Hong Kong. So we have this pressure around. China and this escalating situation in Hong Kong. We also learned from 700 pages of Iranian intelligence documents published by the New York Times working with The Intercept that things in Iraq are not what they have perhaps always appeared as well. I thought this was so, again, a fascinating insight into a government we don't usually see the internal workings. Of So the central takeaway of all these documents from in- Iranian intelligence officials is that the Iranians have been involved the highest level of the Iraqi government. I suppose this shouldn't come as a surprise, considering that there are protesters in the streets of Iraq protesting said Iranian influence and government corruption. But I was really shocked by some of the details in these documents that they had Iranian informants at the highest level of the Iraqi government. Many of these informants were basically abandoned 
by America with after our withdrawal in 2011. And so the Iranians came in, um, were already there, came in with the occupation of Iraq um, and started cultivating these informants after they after America withdrew in 2011. You know, one of the one of the takeaways from The New York Times was that this basically confirms what's been the story even inside the American military, which is we basically handed control over to Iran in the aftermath of our invasion and occupation. It's just one more layer of, you know, a story we've been talking about since our series in 2000 on September 11th, which is that the invasion and occupation of Iraq and then our abandonment of it opened up all these sort of power plays and, you know, with the Ba'athist and the Sunnis and these in these groups that were in power or not under the government of Saddam Hussein. And, and you know, you leave a power vacuum when you leave or when you shut down parts of the government or leave people unemployed, people that were formerly powerful that had access to intelligence and weapons. And that's what's happened here. Now, in- interestingly enough, it's not just the Iraqis that are protesting. The Iranians are also protesting the government has cut Internet access across most of the nation because of protest over a fuel price hike. And so, you know, it's just so scary and complicated to look at the ways that the fallout continues to to shake out or come to fruition of our occupation of Iraq. Makes you think about the situation in Syria as well and just Mm -hmm. all the times in the Middle East where we've gone in with an objective for our country and really not thought about or at least given serious consideration and preparation for what happens next. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you contend with that what happens next in an unstable world where you don't control everything and you certainly don't understand even some of the most important factors influencing people's decisions. But we really have to start thinking differently about when, why and how the American military engages in in parts of the world, because we just we're hurting ourselves in terms of our international reputation, in terms of our own security because of things like this. And it's, I don't know, it just kind of breaks my heart, especially as I think about the sacrifice that our military members make to go do these missions and then to contend with the aftermath of it. It's it's heartbreaking. Before we turn our attention to domestic affairs, we had one more international story that seems important to point out, which is that North Korea, another hotspot in the globe, says it won't have another summit with the president without getting U.S. concessions. Kim Jong-un has given the U.S. an end-of-year deadline to offer mutually acceptable terms for a deal on nuclear weapons. And when I read that Kim Jong-un had issued a deadline to the United States, it took my breath away a little bit. Mm -hmm. that it was just reported so neutrally like that. (laughs) This is where we are. The United States called off joint military exercises with South Korea over the weekend to create space for diplomacy. And the president tweeted something like, you know, looking forward to getting this resolved. See you soon. Let's do a deal. But North Korea has said, we are not going to have another summit for you to brag about without getting something in return. Now, who knows what will happen here? I do not take anything the North Korean government says at face value. This just felt important to talk about, one, because it is a very dangerous situation, and two, because it so illustrates that our foreign policy has no rhyme or reason right now. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, neither as we move domestically, neither does our domestic policy. He just reversed himself on vaping. Basically, well, Melania and Ivanka were concerned, but now that it might have electoral consequences, we're not going to do this anymore. So disturbing. It is disturbing. Some good news domestically, at least I think it's good news. Uh, Louisiana's incumbent Democrat John Bell Edwards was reelected by 40,000 votes. Interesting to me that a lot of the reporting on this has been he he just edged out the Republican opponent. I don't know, maybe because I'm from Kentucky, but 40,000 votes seems fairly significant Mm -hmm. to me. We had a listener reach out on Instagram and tell us that, yeah, it was New Orleans, but you also saw 50 percent for him in some of the New Orleans suburbs, which is a big deal. It sounds like some of what we were seeing up in your part of the state in Kentucky, that 
the fallout from Trump's administration, his approach generally continues with moderates in suburban, used to be Republican suburban strongholds. Another piece of analysis that I thought was really interesting in the Washington Post, one of the nonpartisan political pollsters coming out of New Orleans was talking about how um, candidates who tightly embrace the president don't have a lot else to sell themselves to voters. I had not thought about it in that way with Bevin, but when you lean so heavily on vote for me because I like Trump, you are leaving a hole in your messaging that's like vote for me because this is what I have accomplished or what I can do for you. And I just thought that was like a really interesting takeaway from both of those states. To underscore that point, another story that is important but not making maybe everyone's highlight reel because that reel is very full right now is mm-hmm. that farm bankruptcies in the United States are at the highest level they've been since 2011. In the 12 months leading up to September, 580 Chapter 12 bankruptcy filings were completed, the most since 2011. Wisconsin had the highest number of those, 48. Wisconsin, of course, being a state where there are lots of dairy farms, the dairy industry is hit particularly hard here. Even though the stock market is soaring, the Kansas City Federal Reserve reports that farm income has fallen in Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Wyoming, portions of western Missouri and northern New Mexico. Iowa's farm debt has hit $18.9 billion in the second quarter of this year. That's the highest level in the nation, with 44 percent of Iowa producers struggling to pay their bills. There's a combination of factors here. The trade wars with China, Mexico and Canada have decreased agricultural exports and depressed already low prices. And then there is extreme weather, flooding, a freeze, and a drought early in the year. Here is a fact from MarketWatch that stunned me. Nearly 40% of farm income right now is related to federal relief programs, farm bill subsidies, and insurance indemnities. This is a dire situation for our farmers, and it's just something that I think it's really important to keep your eye on. The Trump administration has announced more funds going to farms over the next couple of months. But guys, like, how long are we going to keep doing this? Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't seem to be working. These subsidies aren't working. They're still going bankrupt. So I don't know why, like, not just don't pour good money after bad, but like, it's not helping the people you're trying to help. And we need these farms. You know, there's a there's a part of me that understands the subsidies here because we we need to we need to have agriculture. I don't know how we keep going as a country if we don't have agriculture. So this is a really important situation that we should continue to pay attention to. It was also reported this week that the president granted clemency to three individuals. Army First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who was convicted of second degree murder in the death of three Afghans. Army Major Matthew Goldstein, who faced murder charges next year for a similar crime, and Special Warfare Operator Chief Edward Gallagher, who was earlier this fall acquitted of a string of war crimes, including posing with the body of a detainee. So two of these individuals, Lawrence and Goldstein, received full pardons, this even though Army Major Goldstein had not had his trial yet. The military had not concluded its process. And Gallagher had his rank restored to chief petty officer. Lawrence ordered soldiers to fire on three unarmed men riding a motorcycle near them. Members of his own platoon testified against him. They said that the Afghan men posed no threat. Goldstein had been charged with murdering an alleged Taliban bomb maker and burning his remains in a trash pit. I am sorry for the gruesome details. But I think it's important to understand why this is such a big story, especially in the military community, because it's been reported that lots of folks from the Pentagon had discouraged the president from becoming involved in these cases. But the families of these soldiers lobbied hard and the president and many conservative lawmakers found themselves sympathetic. And so now we have clemency granted to these three individuals. And I just struggle. I struggle with this. Who's in his ear about this? Who is pushing him to do these things? It's not like he's following closely the, you know, trials of soldiers. I don't I don't know where this is. I don't get where this is coming from. I worry about the impact on members of our military who care very much about ethics and security for our military members. Again, I mean, I think when we 
use our military in ways that are ultimately harmful and not related to our security objectives overseas, I think it makes our military members less safe. It's exactly how I feel about our police officers. When there are police shootings of people who you know, are unarmed, I think that ultimately makes other police officers less safe. And so I just, I don't understand this decision. I think it is important to note that this is happening. And I would love to talk with lawmakers about what I'm missing in that analysis, if anything. We also had Melissa reach out and ask us to pay attention to a House Science Committee hearing last week. It was the same time as the Intelligence Committee hearing, so it didn't get a lot of media attention. But the future of science and EPA rulemaking is pretty important. Basically, what the rule says is that scientists have to disclose all the raw data from studies, including confidential health information. Health information is usually gathered under confidentiality agreements because of HIPAA. So any studies complying with HIPAA and won't re- that can't release their raw data will then be discarded. And without these studies, the rules that they relate to no longer have scientific data and can be eliminated. And the rewritten proposed rule will be applied retroactively when a rule comes up for review, which seems insane to me. The EPA did not take this hearing seriously. There is a fantastic live tweet thread from the hearing from John Walk, who is the Clean Air Director and Senior Attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council. We'll link that thread in the show notes. But essentially, the EPA sends over an official who is in charge of the department impacted by this rule now, but wasn't when the new rule was drafted. So she conveniently was able to say, like, I don't have information about that. I'll have to refer you elsewhere for that. And Democratic lawmakers were really pressing like, hey, isn't this going to impact some of the most important regulations that we have out there? And doesn't this discredit all kinds of studies that are scientifically sound? And the administrator was just kind of noncommittal about any of that. And someone finally put it to her, who's going to be responsible if people die because of this rule? And she really couldn't answer that question either. I mean, it's just, this is the kind of thing that happens in our government. I'm so grateful that Melissa pointed this out because it is so easy to miss this stuff. When we're talking about toxins in water and paint and smog and the things that really create lots of sickness and death across the country and an unwillingness to regulate those things because of industry, To the point where we will discredit studies because we can't look at individuals' medical records. We're just, we're losing the entire purpose of government, I think. We're going to turn our attention to impeachment in a moment. We must talk about three shootings that have taken place over the past few days. As we are recording, we're learning that three people have died at a Walmart in Duncan, Oklahoma. In California, four people were killed and at least six were injured watching football in their backyard in Fresno at a football party. 35 to 40 people were gathered there. Police say they think it was a targeted attack, but they do not know the motivation. On Sunday, a man in Fresno in his 20s was shot to death in his home. And all of this followed the shooting in Santa Clarita, where a 16-year-old boy opened fire and killed two classmates, wounded three others, and then died by suicide. I thought that Rather than try to find new ways to discuss an old problem, we should just share the words of Jilly Spencer, a 17-year-old student from Santa Clarita. Dear Columbine, dear Parkland, dear Sandy Hook, dear places who have seen this before, could you tell me how? Could you tell me how you got up some mornings after it was all over? Could you tell me how to fight my fears now that they've become true? Because despite how surreal this all is, despite how much I want to cry or vomit or laugh or scream at how ridiculous this really is and how it was finally us, I still want to get up. I don't want to live with this fear on my chest, this guilt. I wasn't there. I was down the street hoping they weren't coming to me, calling my friends, waiting for the simple response of I'm okay. So could you tell me how? How do I go to school when my classmates can't anymore? Sincerely, Santa Clarita, the new name on your list. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. You know how you learn to really appreciate how good your products are? Leave town and get stuck with whatever shampoo is in the hotel. I take Pros and their custom hair products for granted, y'all. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. I never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with Pros, I've noticed so many benefits. My thin hair is moisturized, but not weighed down, and my waves have never looked better. And Pros isn't just better for you, it's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corps, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So you get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. In previous episodes, I have outed myself as a bed-making fanatic. I am very serious about my bed being an oasis, a gift to Chad and me as we crawl into it at the end of a long day. So I want to return to how much I love my bowl and branch sheets. With bowl and branch sheets, you can discover a new level of softness. The sheets are made from 100% organic cotton in a buttery, breathable weave that truly gets softer every time you wash them. And you know that I like to do that once a week. So my bowl and branch are rapidly aging like a fine wine. The sheets look great. I have them in a beautiful slate color. They stay put, so making my bed is quick and easy. They are a bestseller for a reason. The signature sheets feel incredible on night one. They are loved by millions of sleepers, and they come with a 30-night worry-free guarantee. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bolin Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code pantsuit at bolandbranch.com. That's bolandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code pantsuit. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Beth, impeachment is making me tired. No, I was just thinking we are just drinking from the biggest impeachment fire hose. And it's crazy because in a way, everything relevant to impeachment is quite simple, but nothing is simple in Washington, D.C. And the the layers that keep getting built onto it and just the number of people who are coming through to fill in the details of what happened, it's a lot. Last week, we heard from Ambassador Bill Taylor, George Kent, and Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. Marie Yovanovitch's testimony in particular was very impactful. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But today, as we're facing another week, the schedule is today, Tuesday, Jennifer Williams, Tim Morrison, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vidman, and Kurt Volker. It's just today, on Tuesday. Wednesday is Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union, Laura Cooper, and David Hale. And then Thursday, we will have Dr. Fiona Hill. I am just waiting for Thursday because I think Dr. Hill is going to be much like Marie Ivanovich. I think that is going to be a hearing to watch. So we actually watched Marie Yovanovitch's testimony together in our hotel room in Nashville. Hotel rooms are not our preferred location for six hours of congressional testimony. 
but we did what we could. I think the way she laid out her background, her like family background and her investment in the United States and then sort of what her job usually is and how different what went down was from sort of the the usual approach in foreign service was huge. And even even for a person who's been reading the testimonies and following the story, the way she in particular laid out the case that basically foreign interests were able to smear her and remove her from office, I think was so brilliant and and just landed so heavily on anybody who watched it. We're going to play a small section of her opening statement. It was a terrible moment. Uh, a person who saw me actually reading the transcript said that the color drained from my face. I think I even had a physical reaction. Um, I, I think, you know, even now words kind of fail me. Well, Without upsetting you too much, I'd like to show you the excerpts um, from the call. And the first one, where President Trump says, the, the former ambassador from the United States, the woman, was bad news. And the people she was dealing with in the Ukraine were bad news. So I just want to let you know. What was your reaction when you heard the President of the United States refer to you as bad news? I couldn't believe it. I mean, again, shocked, appalled, devastated that um, the President of the United States would talk about any ambassador uh, like that um, to a foreign uh, head of state. <laughs> and it was me. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Part of what I think is fascinating about her hearing is that Republicans couldn't try to impeach her character it's weird mm -hmm. to use impeach that way because we're talking about impeachment hearings. But in just the regular old sense of legal proceedings, you often try to impeach a witness's credibility. And I think Republicans knew they couldn't do that. There are a bunch of things at play, right? There are gender dynamics. There are her very compelling personal stories of serving our country in Somalia and in Moscow and in all of these posts that were hardship and, and not at all glamorous and very dangerous. So they couldn't really go after her. And the best they could do was kind of cut around the edges of, well, you never talked to the president, right? You don't have any evidence that the president bribed anyone, right? And the worst thing that they attempted to do was to say, this was probably pretty bad, but it all's well that ends well, right? They spent yeah. a bunch of their time asking her about how she has landed at Georgetown teaching a couple classes to the point where Mike Conaway asked her, how many students are in each of your classes? Like trying to say, you got a really cushy gig out of all this, right? So NBD. And it was really hmm. insulting to watch. And I was so grateful for Representative Val Demings who just came right in and cut through that and said, it is disgraceful to act like you ought to be grateful for the crumbs of a position at Georgetown after having your reputation smeared and after being recalled from this assignment that you care deeply about at the pinnacle of your career. And I just had a moment in the hotel room of extreme gratitude for Val Demings and her ability to say that in real time because I was watching this hearing absolutely embarrassed about the way Congress treated this witness. We not only witnessed in real time the way the minority party treated this witness, we got to witness in real time the way the president treated this witness. We were both absolutely floored. You know, I had shared the president's tweet attacking Yovanovitch during her testimony. And I said, oh, well, he's clearly watching and he's nervous. And, you know, I think I'm a little ashamed to say that I'm so numb to his bullying and intimidation that I didn't sort of think about the import of the president of the United States attacking a witness as she was testifying before Congress. But let me tell you, somebody on Adam Schiff's staff did because they read it out loud. You and I were both like, 
oh my God, what is happening? They read the tweet out loud for Yovanovitch to respond to, which she did and said, it's intimidating. And Adam Schiff was like, well, some of us take the intimidation of witnesses very seriously. It was basically like an article of impeachment, intimidation of witness, live in time. Not to mention, not even to mention that this is why during the verdict in Roger Stone's trial for lying to Congress, did he get intimidating witness too? He did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And intimidating a witness. It just, it was surreal and even fox news was like huh that was bad and some of the best arguments in the president's defense about that were that well he couldn't really be intimidating this witness because there she was testifying but the president did not learn from that defense because he over the weekend was tweeting about jennifer williams who is set to testify on tuesday called her a never-Trumper, told her to get together with other never-Trumpers to discuss a better attack on the president. Jennifer Williams is a State Department employee who works in the vice president's office and is set to testify on Tuesday. And in advance of her testimony, he was tweeting these attacks. And so he apparently thinks that he is just an ordinary citizen exercising his ordinary right to vent on Twitter about whatever he thinks. And I thought the speaker did a good job of saying over the weekend, the words of the president weigh a ton. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to talk as Americans about whether we want that to continue to be true. It is not a good thing that we both were so numb to him doing this kind of thing that we didn't immediately think, The president of the United States is tweeting about a witness in a congressional proceeding. That's a problem. You know, it just bypasses all of us. So either his words weigh a ton and what he says is incredibly problematic, if not impeachable conduct, or we've decided we don't want the president to have that bully pulpit anymore. I mean, I feel like those are our two options here. And and as citizens, we need to think about that. I loved how his press secretary was basically like, well, I mean, he has a right to his opinion. That is the last resort of the lamest of arguments I've ever been in. When people feel cornered and they don't have a defense and they know what they're saying is either ridiculous or wrong, they definitely go to, well, I have a right to my opinion. I mean, I guess, yeah, it doesn't mean your opinion isn't wrong or your behavior is wrong. I hate it when people say that. That might be my second least favorite under agree to disagree. Well, everybody has a right to their opinion. Ugh. Yeah, having an opinion and expressing it are two different things. And expressing an opinion as Beth Silvers on Twitter is different, I think, than expressing an opinion as the president of the United States on Uh Twitter. and. This, to me, is just fundamentally where it's a weird argument to have with people who aren't upset about this, because it seems like the word of the president shouldn't matter that much anymore. And and I don't I just can't imagine that's where we really want to be as a country. Well, Jim Jordan was also there as he Ugh. as he shows up and he over the weekend said that he would like to hear from Republican Senator Ron Johnson about meetings with Trump and Gordon Sondland. And this, I'm going to say, is one of the first good ideas I've heard from Jim Jordan, because I, too, would like to hear from Senator Johnson about those firsthand meetings. Johnson has said he will respond, but he will not testify as a witness because there has to be some separation between the House and the Senate chamber. I suspect this is just a working theory that Senator Johnson might be the person who introduced Trump to the phrase quid pro quo because mm. he was involved pretty early on. I mean, he he basically told the Wall Street Journal he heard this discussion that the aid had been put on hold and that they were also trying to get these investigations. But then he talked to the president and the two weren't linked. And I just I wonder if Senator Johnson is the person who who taught the president that that we can't have these two things linked together. But you know what? To me, I thought this when we got Taylor and Sondland's text message where he was like, remember, president says no quid pro quo. And here is my flow of thinking. Often when the president does something, shreds a norm, does something obviously wrong to illegal, I think he's just so ignorant to his job and the balance of power and the checks and balances. But then when I saw that text message, I thought, 
hold on. If he's using quid pro quo, then he has been coached or informed or taught enough to know that there's a line he's crossing and he better use the right language to not cross it. To me, that is like a further indictment and eliminates sort of one of the requisite state of mind arguments they're trying to make, which is, and they often try to make, which is he didn't know it was wrong, so he couldn't do anything wrong. You know what I mean? Like the fact that he's using that language to me says, oh, no, you was wrong. And you were trying to carefully walk the line and make sure you weren't crossing it, even though it's obvious that you were crossing it. Yeah, I think that's right, especially about that Sondland text message. And especially when you read that text message in the context of all the other messages that were flying back and forth between these guys on WhatsApp. Like it's just it's stunningly out of character in the way that it's formatted and in the language of the sentence. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you about that. I don't know what to make of Johnson responding but not being under oath. That is something that's coming up around the president, too. You know, Nancy Pelosi said over the weekend that Trump is welcome to testify in front of Congress. And she said, if if there's something exculpatory, bring it forth. And so then President Trump tweets that he's thinking about it. She opened the door for him to testify in person or in writing. Um, I read a tweet I think it was from Charles Gabba. I can't remember. But it said something like, if Trump is going to testify in writing, they should do it on the condition that he comes alone to a hearing room and has a set amount of time to himself handwrite answers to the questions. (laughs) Now, I think there is a 0% chance that Trump testifies in any form in this inquiry, but that is being batted around right now, too. I think when we look at some of the outside events and the testimony themselves. And we try to talk about, well, what's going to happen? There are two distinct but related groups to talk about. So often when we talk about the impeachment inquiry, it becomes, well, nothing's going to happen in the Senate. Well, first of all, I don't think that's a for sure thing. I should hope as the people testifying and the people in the Senate who will ultimately hear this testimony consider the Roger Stone verdict and all the other people who lined up to testify and protect Trump who are now in jail. And also on the most politically pragmatic level, these Republican candidates and even deep red states who leaned on Trump for that support and nothing happened. I really hope that there becomes a critical mass and the people who will be voting and making the decision on whether or not to remove Trump from office. I don't know how a Lisa Murkowski or a Mitt Romney or a, you know, any other Republican, even the more ideological ones, read that tweet, look at Marie Ivanovich, say it's intimidating, and then say he didn't. Oh, it's not. Well, it's intimidation of a witness, but not impeachable level of intimidation of witness. I don't know how they do that. You know what this makes me think about, Sarah? You and I had this really, I thought, rich conversation in the course of our travels. I think we were driving across Texas. I don't exactly remember. About how so many people are too, like, think that cynicism is sophisticated. And any attempt at earnestness or enthusiasm is dismissed as being naive or not intelligent. And I'm fearful that we are going to basically give up our democratic republic in service of the idea that we are all too individually sophisticated to stand up for our ideals. Well, that was my that was my second distinct group, which is, you know, I think we're talking about the people who will ultimately making the vote. And listen, it's politics and it's the United States Senate. And I am not going to argue that cynicism is misplaced. Okay, I get it. I get it. And I think, you know, often my own personal political analysis has gone awry because I am an optimist and I do want to believe the best in people. And because I am so motivated um, as an Enneagram one by right and wrong in my own gut, it is inconceivable often to me that people would make such disgustingly based political calculations. Okay, I get it. I get all that. But the next distinct group that we're talking about is the American public. And within those American public, I think you have 
people who I'm going to say are under the Trump trans. We have been getting a lot of emails and messages about, I'm watching this impeachment hearing. I'm seeing something that is under any objective level wrong and bad and terrible for our national security. But, you know, the Trump trans is so strong. There's nothing. Nothing's going to change that. And what do I do? And, you know, and I can even feel that despondency. I shared a a New York Times article with Beth this morning that's basically like people see natural disasters differently through partisan lenses. And it makes me want to cry. But, you know, I I think it's really hard because I do think that the group under the Trump trance is not reflective of the majority of Americans. But because they are so loud and because it does seem like we are disagreeing about reality, there's this growing group of people who are just confused and don't feel like they can they can trust anything they read. And so they just stop reading and they stop engaging. And I'm worried that impeachment is pushing this sort of chemical reaction among us even further. And I, I don't, you know, I have some ideas about what I think will stop it, but they take a long time to root and grow. And I'm worried that we don't have that much time. The first time we talked about the Trump trance, we got an email from someone who really found that language offensive. And I and I understood the email. And she said, look, you know, don't you want people to listen who still support the president? And I said, of course I do. And I think she's right that we shouldn't take away anyone's agency with that kind of language, because I do think people are making pretty intentional decisions about their support for the president. And ultimately, I think a a good symbol of what's going on here came through in what Representative Elise Stefanik did during the hearings this week, where she took a gamble that Democrats are worse than whatever could be happening inside the administration. And that's just fundamentally where it is, right? That, That it is partisanship. And a lot of it is about the president, but the president ultimately is a vehicle for just blanket, naked partisanship. And this idea that the Democratic brand and what it stands for, which they, you know, you would you would be led to believe is socialism and the murder of unborn children, has to always be worse than whatever is happening in the administration. And Even that I could find more understandable if people were willing to say, "Okay, you know what? What he did here was dumb. It was inappropriate. It should be decided in in an election. And probably he shouldn't be our candidate in that election. But to go back to what I was saying about cynicism, I'm just fearful that we're we are so branded in our politics at this point that no one's willing to even say that because he is the face of the Republican Party right now. And no one is willing to even put that distance between themselves and him. And when you have someone like Stefanik, who's taken some hard votes against the party at times when it really mattered making this big bet through procedural stunts. You know, she she tried to, in her words on Twitter, expose Adam Schiff for shutting her down in a hearing when she knew it wasn't her turn to talk. She knew that. It really does lead me to that place of recognition that all these decisions are very intentional decisions. And the motivation beneath those is that the American public is some combination of too busy, too disengaged, and too fearful of what the hardcore left could bring should Democrats win elections to hold anyone to account for things that are just plainly unacceptable. had a friend post on Facebook during the impeachment hearings, basically stop arguing the facts because people who are so devoted to the president 
to these partisan filters to the idea that a natural disaster, you know, isn't caused by climate change because climate change is a democratic hoax. You know, just these extreme beliefs like he was basically it doesn't matter because this is about the culture war. And Donald Trump is just a manifestation of that. And people who you know, felt stomped over and ignored and don't like the direction that societal changes are going in, be it diversity, be it reproductive freedom, be it LGBTQ rights. Like it doesn't, nothing is going to change that because they're in this battle mindset. I even thought about it sort of from the opposite perspective and a conversation we had at Abilene Christian University where there was some conflict between the the Democrats on campus and the pro-life group on campus and the the Democratic representative, like, you could hear the frustration in her voice. She felt silenced. She felt not heard. And I thought, man, this starts so young. This idea that one side in the, in the culture wars thinks I'm stupid or thinks I'm, you know, going to hell, depending on which side you're on. They want to silence me at all cost. This is the stakes are as high as they could possibly be. And so there is not a millimeter for movement. And you see that manifesting in the way people talk about climate change or Donald Trump or impeachment or anything. And, you know, I don't know how to stop that. I did read that Facebook and Google are thinking about not allowing for micro-targeting of political ads instead of just banning ads. I think that's a good start. Um, But, you know... I can't believe cynicism is going to help it. The idea of, you know, the SNL meme, no, it's going to happen. No, it's going to happen. Like, you know, until we can at least stop talking like that, I'm not sure how we're going to stop acting like that. But it, it just feels it. I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't feel like an incredible uphill battle most of the time. Respectfully, I think that post from your friend on Facebook is exactly wrong. Because mm. I do think. If we want to break through any of this and find some common facts and some common standards, you know, like we say about everything else, this is the drumbeat of our book. Like, if we can't talk about it in our homes, how do we expect it to get better elsewhere? And so I guess the the biggest thing I would share is just let's trust each other with these facts and let's trust each other with a conversation in which we can say, okay, if you aren't there yet, what would get you there? What is the missing piece of information that you would need to find this conduct? Not even impeachable, but let's just start with unacceptable. What is the missing piece that could put you there? And if there's nothing, can we talk about why not? And can we talk about whether that's what we want to be in American politics? Can we flip the labels on this discussion and ask ourselves how you would view this if the other party were doing it? I mean, I just think we've got to trust each other with these conversations. I don't think he was saying don't talk about it. I think he was saying be cognizant of what you're actually talking about. And I don't think he's wrong. I think having trying to have any conversation with someone that dedicated to the president is not really about how bad could it be before you would take his behavior seriously? It's about the fact that it will always be worse on the other side. It will always be worse to consider a liberal or a Democrat, basically, because they are the, because culture wars, because you, you think we're stupid. You've shoved it down our throats. All you want to do is empower every diversity model to an identity politics to stomp all over my way of living and jump me in line. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's not that we shouldn't talk about it. I just I think he's right. Maybe we should be more cognizant of what we are talking about. And then maybe the question is, how do you suppose the culture wars might end? Mm. Mm-hmm. We're finally at my favorite time of year. Spring is here. Summer is just around the corner. We're getting our summer essentials ready, our sunscreen, our emotional support water bottles, our steamy beach reeds. But maybe you would prefer your steamy earbuds. This year, there is a new kind of essential right at your fingertips. Enemies to love, chance encounters, a slow burn, friends that become more. Whatever your favorite romantic trope, 
Dipsy has a spicy audio story just for you. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short and spicy audio stories that bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. You can discover stories about second chance romances and adventurous vacation flings. That's my favorite. Hot and heavy hookups. It can be as heavy or as light as you want it to be. This is what I love about Dipsy. It is a modern approach to romance through high quality, captivating audio fiction that you can listen to in the privacy of your own headphones. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they made solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I mean, I think that's where that was my aha moment in 2016 is I don't think anybody's leaving the union. So if I want to continue as the United States of America, I have to acknowledge that maybe there are some things we will never agree with, but that I still respect the right of these people to be at the table. But dang, it's also hard to give that sort of benefit of the doubt and good faith when you never get it in return. And I think that is especially true and hard to do inside the spectrum of impeachment. I think my one wish is that as much as I am tired looking at the schedule of witnesses this week, I do hope that there's enough flow of facts that are hard to ignore, that everybody can see these testimonies, that we're not depending on reporting. Can I trust this reporting that you can just witness this this flow of testimony and push the conversation in a new place. I mean, that is my that is my desperate prayer. But I do fear that even hours and hours of an <laughs> impeachment hearing aren't enough to short circuit our culture war instincts. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I am 300% obsessed with The Righteous Gemstones, Danny McBride's HBO show about a televangelist family. I've already fallen down this hole of televangelism. I got swept up into it with The Preacher's Wife by Kate Bowler, and she talks about sort of the growth of televangelism in the 70s and she says just enough for me to, like, want to know more about the regulations and how it led to this rise. Then on American Heretics, they were talking about how in the 70s, Oral Roberts was pulling in $50 million a month in 1970s dollars. So I was already kind of into this role, into the the way this plays out. I was I was right for the picking for just entertainment about this subject matter. And this show is so brilliant and so funny, but also kind of poignant and touching. And I just love it. I'm now on a mission to watch everything that Danny Brickbride has made. 
I get have to give major props to Jamie and Knox at the Popcast for first sort of pushing me into this into this t- TV show with a recommendation. But it is just hysterical. I love it so much. I cannot recommend it enough. And also, anybody out there with more televangelism content for me too, especially like a history. I'm here for it. Send it my way. Well, I want to talk about Survivor real fast because reality TV continues its journey to being more like reality. And we had, if you've not watched the most recent episode, everybody just stop right here. But we had this whole like Me Too situation on Survivor. Ruh-roh. There is a contestant named Dan who has been very handsy with women. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's all filmed. So it's not like there's a he said, she said element. Like, you'll see a woman talking about, and then he put his hand on my rib cage. And they'll show us when he put his hand on her rib cage. So they're not confusing facts here. We know exactly what's happened. We don't know his intentions. And I understand that, you know, people have different sets of intentions about being touchy with other people. Megan emailed me about this, though, because and she reacted exactly as I did. This whole situation got so convoluted because, to survivors' credit, some of the women were talking about this in their sort of individual conversations with producers. And one of the producers said, hey, if this is a problem, let's address this as a problem. I do not want anybody to be uncomfortable out here. So then they had a meeting that like the screen went black with typeface on it to say we met with everybody individually. We met with everybody as a group. We talked about the standards. We issued a warning to this contestant. I mean, typeface screens are very serious in reality show history. Exactly. Well, then it sort of starts to go sideways because some of the women use this in their discussions about how the vote is going to go. And an older woman who had been a little bit the sounding board for the younger women who were experiencing this from this guy starts to feel, even though she really likes the guy, she starts to feel really guilty about this and like she wants to protect these young women. And so she says, you know what, let's just vote him out. Let's get rid of this problem. And then that ultimately gets used against her. And there's a very dramatic tribal council where Dan, the guy, says, can't we just let this go? Can't we let this go? And Jeff Probst says, I will never let this go. I will never, ever let this go. And he said, we will be here on day 39 and we will still be talking about this because, no, I will not let it go. And so I was very I've been very happy. I feel like CBS has learned some lessons from Big Brother and lots of things that have happened. but. It illustrated how even when we know exactly what is going on, everybody's motivation starts to become suspect when you are talking about anything touching on Me Too. And it was kind of depressing to see that some of the women were willing to exploit the situation within the context of the game. It was depressing to see that some of the men were saying things like one of the guys named Aaron said, well, if this were such a big deal, I would have known about it. The other guys would have known about it, too. And fortunately, one of the contestants, Jamal, stood up and said, that is exactly what happens in real life. Men say, if this were so important, I would have known about it. No, we wouldn't. Our job is to shut up and listen. So it was very intense. I have a lot of feelings about it. I do want to say to CBS, I appreciate them handling this the way they do. Mm. That is very intense for a reality show that's supposed to be watching to, like, chill out, I guess. But I don't know. Survivor's really never been a a, a sit-back-and-chill kind of show. I mean, I think this is a little bit more than I want from it, to be honest with you. But I also (laughs) am glad they're confronting it. I also have just been thinking about, like, if they they really want to advance the cause, I would like to address things like the fact that some people are going to have their periods while they're out there, okay? Like, there are all kinds of things that are happening— that women in particular have to deal with in these reality contexts that no one ever discusses. And I really feel like that's the next iteration. Like, let if we're going to walk into it, let's just walk right into it. But perhaps that's just me that would like, you know, feminine hygiene to be addressed on Survivor. Well, if you want to relax, The Crown also just dropped on Netflix. So that is available to you as well. Everything is available. I'm worn out with these streaming services. How much television do we need? I mean, it's this is overwhelming. 
So true. It's so true. We got impeachment hearings to watch. Hold it back, Disney. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for joining us in a sea of content here at Pantsuit Politics again this week. We will be back in your ears tomorrow on The Nuance Life and then back on Friday. It'll probably be a three hour episode because we have 1600 hours of testimony to get through between now and then. But we appreciate your patience. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.